You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Hello and welcome to the SPL's first podcast of 2021. My name is Colin Waters and I'll be your host for the next 40 minutes of poetry and conversation about poetry. Last year, every aspect of the day-to-day operation of the Scottish Poetry Library services was impacted by the COVID-19 outbreak. How could it not? Our podcast too had to adapt. Regular listeners will recall that around last spring, the interviews took on a certain tinniness of sound as we made the leap from in-person interviews to recording poets using online platforms, in our case, Zencaster. During the pandemic, we've witnessed an incredible upsurge in the number of poems written about the effects of COVID by, yes, published poets, but also by people who are new to poetry, but who see in the form a way to express the sorrow, rage, fear, and even hope unleashed by the pandemic. Now a year into the COVID era, the publisher Shearsman Books is putting out a new title, Poetry in COVID-19, an anthology of contemporary, international and collaborative poetry. It's edited by Anthony Kaleshu and Rory Waterman, the idea being to pair 19 UK-based poets with poets from around the world to work on poems together. As the blurb puts it, the poems herein are as personal as they are communal and as local as they are international. Between them, the writers reside in all the world's permanently populated continents, recognising that the pandemic has truly hit us everywhere. The collection features work by several writers who have appeared in the podcast before, including Rory himself, Fanny Capaldeo, Sinead Morrissey, George Surtees and Alvin Pang, as well as poets who have performed in person at the library, such as Omar Musa and Zoe Scolding. When Rory contacted me at the start of the year to ask whether the SPL would be interested in recording a podcast about the book, I left at the chance, and so we have not one but two podcasts based on the book coming up today's and we'll put out another one next month. The contributors to this podcast are Rory Waterman, who will chair proceedings. Uh, he's a poet from Nottingham, uh, who has three collections published by Carcanet. Linda Stern-Zisquit, who is an American-born Israeli poet and translator. And finally, Declan Ryan, who was born in County Mayo, uh, but has lived most of his life in London, and his first pamphlet was published in the Faber New Poet series. I'll give details of the second Poetry in COVID-19 podcast at the end of the show, but in the meantime, here's Rory to introduce the conversation. Hi, I'm Rory Waterman, a poet and previous guest on this podcast, now briefly turns chair of sorts. Um, I have two excellent poets with me, Declan Ryan, who's in London, uh, that London, and Linda Stone Ziskwit, who's speaking to us from Israel. So I'm looking forward to our discussion in a few minutes, but first I'll say a word or two about what's going on here. The reason I've been invited to host this is because of my involvement in the Poetry and Covid project, and we're very grateful to the SPL for being partners in the project. So Poetry and Covid is an international project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and led by Anthony Kleshu at the University of Plymouth and me at Nottingham Trent University. And the aim of the project is to consider the potential roles of poetry as a mode of discourse during the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a website, poetryandcovid.com, which includes resources and lots of poems about the pandemic submitted from all over the world, comments on those from readers and videos. And there's also an anthology, 
full of lots of wonderful poets, including the likes of Sinead Morrissey and A.E. Stirlings and Vidian Ravintharan, Tagara Muzanin-Harmo, Rachel Allen, Shemista Mahanti, Andre Nafis-Saheli, Harriet Tarlow, and the guests I have with me now, Declan Ryan and Linda Stern-Ziskrit. Last summer, Anthony and I invited 19 UK-based poets, in fact, to partner with poets from around the world to work collaboratively on poems responding to the virus. Poetry, of course, is generally a singular art, but collaboration seems to Anthony and me then, and seems to us now, an appropriate way to respond to circumstances that both force us apart and make us aware of our interdependence. Also, it just gave us a chance to throw exciting poets into exciting dialogues. The finished anthology, Poetry in COVID-19, an anthology of contemporary international and collaborative poetry, is being published by Shearsman next month, almost exactly a year since the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic. The poems in the book are often as personal as they are communal and as local as they are international. And they also embrace, they they really do, multiple styles. It's a very eclectic book. Between them, the writers live in all of the world's permanently populated continents, kind of echoing, in a sense, the fact that the pandemic has truly hit us everywhere. So that's the background, and now to our poets. Linda Stern-Ziskwit has published five full-length collections of poetry in the USA, most recently Havoc, her new and selected poems, and Return from Elsewhere. A pamphlet from the notebooks of Cora's daughter was published in the UK by New York Editions in 2019. More about them in a minute. Linda was born in Buffalo, New York, and now she lives in Jerusalem, where she's a writer, of course, a translator, and she teaches and she runs an art gallery. Declan Ryan was, like me as it happens, born in Ireland and grew up in England. His debut pamphlet was published in the Faber New Poets series, and the second pamphlet, Fighters Losers, was published again by New York Editions in 2019, and that was shortlisted for the Michael Marks Award for Best Pamphlet. He's a regular reviewer of poetry in the TLS, PN Review, and, you know, all over the place. So, Linda, Deck, I'm going to ask you to read your collaboration for the anthology in, in, a, in a few minutes, but... First of all, as it's sort of um, highly relevant to the discussion and the book, how has your experience of the pandemic been? Are you pulling your hair out? Are you coping? Well, I guess I'll speak first. I have been coping. We've been in quarantine a number of times. Our, some of our children have been sick. But it's been a time of not having to cook for large numbers of people in the family or guests. Oh, right. And the cooking has been simple and healthy, and that's good. And my garden has been a great haven and also a source of a lot of life. And yesterday you asked us to maybe think about a poem we've written. And I don't think I've written any poems, but I did a lot of teaching and a lot of translating. And I have a pile of drafts that I'm planning to work on. But collaborating with Deck was a lifeline. That's interesting. I mean, it really is hard to write at the moment, isn't it? And a lot, a lot of poets are saying that. So you found the frame of, you know, the garden and cooking. So you, you have sort of regular frame, and that's that's kind of helping you through. Would you say? Yes, and and there's also been a lot of teaching on Zoom. During we've had three lockdowns, so during two different periods between lockdowns, I have had students coming here 
And actually, the only real writing I did besides collaborating with Deck was writing when my students were writing. And so that, I mean, there has been a, a kind of framework, but it's very, very different. And I have no complaints. We've been very lucky. Yeah. When you say coming, coming to you, do you mean coming to your home? Yes, we've kept distance, but they've come to my home. These were graduate students from the university, and we'd have small groups. It was actually also very, very energized and helpful. Yeah, that's lovely. We've we've not been able to do that. Um, I work at a university. We we've not we've not been able to do that. But that that sounds lovely. What about you, Dick? How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I mean, not not too bad. I mean, I've been sort of on and off freelancing for the last three or four years, so I'm sort of well used to the daily working from home routine, really. And and I remember on the the first day or two of lockdown, a, a good friend of mine sent me a message and said, you know, you can't go out or see people. It's your time to shine. Um, which felt a little <laughs> on the nose. But yeah, no, I mean, it's it's been okay in relative terms. It's been okay. I mean, I'm I'm very you know thoroughly sick of it, as I'm sure everyone is at this point but I mean I haven't I haven't suffered like other people have so I, I probably shouldn't complain too badly I mean boredom and, and things like that are universal but no I, I've been fairly all right so yeah I, I've borne it as best I could I've been, been busy enough with pieces and writing essays and reviews and things so I've, I've, I've generally yeah. had something to track myself with as well which has been quite good <laughs> Yeah, good. Um, I, I had the pleasure of introducing the two of you, a, a real pleasure, back in the old world of gatherings and international travel and all those sorts of things that we thought were normal. Because I'm also the editor of New York Editions, um, and, and as I said a minute ago, both of you published pamphlets with New York in 2019, and you also read together in, in Nottingham. And I'd like to add, for the benefit of anyone listening, that um, you are the only two New York poets in the book. But would you mind saying a few words about your own recent pamphlets and what you thought of each other's? I mean, you, you clearly liked them, or you wouldn't have agreed to work together on this Poetry and Covid commission. But, but did you see any obvious points of connection between your work? Well, it was very interesting. We met for the first time at our mutual book launch. And we clearly appreciated each other's work, but the idea of collaborating seemed so foreign, also for me to even expose myself in that way, you know, other than working in a very quiet space and, and then sometimes publishing. But I grew to love Deck's work. I reread his pamphlet, his wonderful wrestling poems, and I wrestled with them. And then it turned out we were both reading some of the same things. I never liked Robert Lowell's poetry. I liked some of his letters. And there I was at that point right. reading Dolphin and I was reading the Dolphin letters. <laughs> and that seemed also a point of connection. And when we started collaborating, we were looking for a form. So we thought about the letter form. We thought of a Japanese syllabic form. But somehow, whatever I was reading, Deck was somehow connected to in his reading. And then there was that couple, the, um, the Italian couple, Dario Fo and Franco Rame, where we enter these personae, and it also kind of gave us a life of a couple or a sister and a brother. There, there were all kinds of different kind of almost permutations of our relationship, and it was so deeply, I'm so deeply grateful for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. Thank you. What, what about you, Dick? Did you see any obvious points of connection between Linda's work and your own when you, when you encountered it? I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in the same way as, as, as Linda said, I mean, it was a, again, it was a the first time I'd met Linda at the, at the launch up in Nottingham and, and reading the poems and reading them again, you know, over the summer to sort of with an eye to, to writing with her. I mean, I think stylistically we maybe do different things a lot of the time, but there's also, yeah. I think, a lot of connections there. I mean, she was very interested in sort of religious language and, and some of those sort of 
direct speech things that I really I'm really interested in. And then again, as she said, there was a weird confluence with all, with all the reading. And almost every time we emailed each other about what we were reading, <laughs> it seemed that we'd sort of hit on something that the other was doing. I mean, I was I was working on a piece about the the dolphin letters at the time, and, and Linda was reading them. And then we had a sort of Hardwick phase, and we'd both been reading that Tim Parks piece on Dario Fo and, and Franca at the. Um, Linda just mentioned and so there was there was lots of these confluences and and I think we probably have people in common that have been important to us in terms of writing but then it just happened that you know our, our reading also was then coinciding so so we had these other regular little points of connection again I think there was a Berryman letters phase that, that mm. we sort of both went through at the same time and it's just it was nice it's kind of I think given the, the letter form as well it was nice in, in our own emails which weren't part of the poem that, that we were also collaborating in, in different ways with us so no, it worked out really beautifully I think really really kind of naturally. I mean, Berryman's letters are fascinating, but you, you didn't manage to get Linda into boxing, Deck. No, no, I think that might have taken one more lockdown. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll work on it. Have either of you ever collaborated with anyone on a poem before? Was this the first time? Not to my memory, I haven't, no. no. I never have either. Oh, with students, sometimes there would be like one line and another student another line, and then I would take part in that, but nothing like this. Neither had I. I mean, Anthony and I are in the anthology as well. And neither of us had, well, no, I'm speaking for him. That might not be true, but it's certainly true for me. And I mean, my instinct is always to run a mile from commissions anyway, let alone the idea of doing something in collaboration, if I'm completely honest. I'm glad you didn't, but did you have any concerns? Well, I've always felt quite private. It was very interesting. Also, you asked about change or how this pandemic has affected I used to have a, a room that I would rent outside the house and I've moved everything back to this wonderful old bedroom of one of our kids. And I love working at home, but the thought of sharing my work or working with someone was not natural to me until now. It was almost as if the pandemic, which caused so much private life, created an ease of moving outward in a way that I didn't expect. That's very much what we hoped would be the case. Um, I, I didn't know what to expect, and, and I think that's generally what we found. In, in some cases, Anthony and I, we, we left poets to find their pairs, the, the poet they wanted to work with. But in, other, in others, we matched poets up. And I think what excited me about pairing the two of you was that your New York pamphlets were just so very different. Uh, Declan's was relatively sprawling and journalistic and I say that affectionately and, and of course pugilistic or at least about that uh, Linda yours was much in some senses much quieter um, certainly more obviously lyrical but, but as listeners are about to hear you, you really did settle on on a kind of composite voice or voices or at least a sort of shared ventriloquization and, and I thought you might I, I imagined in advance that you might write very separate poems to a shared theme or something like that, but you didn't do that at all. So could you, just as a way to introduce the poem, really, could you tell us a bit about what you did and where the idea came from? Well, we we were questioning what to do, and the fact that we were writing letters to each other, the letter form was very appealing. Right around that same time, I had read an article in The Atlantic all about collaborative well, people who were collaborating in a very negative way with people in government and Trump, etc. And my husband had handed me an article from TLS about Dario Fo and Franco Rame and their connection. And we sort of just, I don't know, we, we just landed on this. I suggested the Tonka form. We veered away from it. It's a very strict syllabic mm. form. 
and we sort of did because it kept the lines short. But I think it was it was letters. It was really letters. Is there anything you want to add to that, Deck? Or are you? Uh... No, I think I think that's that's spot on. I mean, our initial sort of emails back and forth before we started writing was was very much to to sort of find that point of of takeoff or something. And as Linda said, it sort of happened that we'd both been reading similar things, and that carried on throughout. So I mean, our, our emails were almost a sort of build up to the the poem in some ways the poem sort of became an extension of those things that this sort of dialogue I think we very quickly sort of trusted the other one to run with something that we were talking about or that we were sort of throwing in there and, and it just it felt very nice and I think the Dario Fo and, and Franca Rehm they, they sort of came and went but but that idea of, of this slightly playful slightly um improvisatory feel that we sort of took from them I think that helped because we, we were able to try on these different personae or characters or, or whatever you want to call them in, in the poem and, and, and sort of just follow our noses a little bit with that. And that, that, that felt quite easy and quite quite freeing. I remember also at the beginning, I sent Deck some of the poems I had been working on and he said, oh, I like the first line of that one. And that's a good idea. He kind of supported, he gave me mm. courage to go back to some of my own work, but I used in my very first letter entry to him, a couple of the lines from a poem that I was working on. So that's how I got going. Oh, that's lovely to hear, and also, of course, that's an encouragement for, for your future work as well. That's brilliant. Um, th- thank you. Right, I- I'm now going to ask you to read the poem, if that's okay, um, unless there's anything else you'd like to say first by way of introduction to it. I'll yeah. just say that we, besides Dario Fo and Franca Rehm and Berryman and Lowell, that we also went to Montali and Racine, we moved around and Camille Claudel suddenly came in because I had seen a film with Rodin and that collaboration. We moved. We were playful, as Deck said. You certainly were. Okay, let's hear the poem. Okay. Dear Dario, I've been held captive by an obsessive love kept within bounds, controlled, confined, captivated, charmed. It took these five months at home to loosen the hold. I have sat and listened to too many words of the collaborating muse and plot too freely with life. Franca, dear, helpless as Racine, you lance through profound places, ever snaking inward, a whipstock, Roman candle. Can I dare call you sister? My guide, my surprise, when my poor mind was troubled, you made for my body. Your spring parts and unites, fish who cuts your nets and chains. Dario, I'm not managing to concentrate, let alone collaborate. Now August already, dolphin, eel, sargasso sea retreat into distances. We'll inspire each other, your comic faces, my indulgence, your skittish rebellions, and my grounding. Not Rodin's Camille who sculpted his hands and feet to leave center stage and be committed, insane. I'm here to stay in orbit. Here is my hand, please take it. Amulet, surprise, peonies tightly fragrant. Let the ants devour the sticky film and open desire. Let the month go by slowly. I'll gather its fruit and reel in our line with its sensuous fishes wobbling again in my mind. Dear Camille, the month has got away as in a dream. The ants march along its dull spotlight. 
the wobble in the mind, or I dream like patchwork Daniel. Rodan's feet are clay, like all golden-headed idols. His hand, his living hand, it reaches out to yours. Nightingale in flight, now land. My brother, I'll hew tomorrow, I'll hew again, like a prayer between sobs. We plumb the depths to come back into the world, informed as much by good as errors of the past. You do not want to get lost, he said, but I did. Oh, how I loved the bliss of indecision, flights, and dreams. This work of transformed and distorted memory. If we circle back, was the writing on the wall? Was there a plan all along? Sister, Franca, I see you surface. You escaped your death struggle with your life. The bliss of never being born is lost. You knock yourself out to be like everyone. Sob your prayers to the master of the snowflake. Circle back. The past is never past. I swore never to care after so many deaths. I cry on my own shoulder. Sargasso see retreat. One plot. The same old always plot. The spotlight stage deserted. To D. It was a turn from hurt and self-absorption, our extraordinary complicity. I am no longer what I have made of myself, but what we have made of me. Losing is the only way to empty and make room, hope of more to come, ripen the wound. But I'm back. How could I leave without an encore? Summer, like a bee, sucks out our best. Plague persists, yet we prepare the earth for spring. Thank you. That that was wonderful. I mean, really superb, and it's it's the first time I've I've heard it as well. And of course, it, it throws up lots of questions. And first of all, you've and you mentioned this before, but you've essentially chosen to use the tanker. You have deviated from it, but a five-line Japanese syllabic form. You've you've used that to some extent for every stanza in the poem and I'm just wondering why it's a slightly unusual choice have either of you written in syllabics before or were you just keen to make the experience wholly new or you know what, what was behind the decision I think I read that the tanka form was used in collaborative verse in Japan that it was originally there for conversation of several poets so it seemed yeah. it seemed it invited us it seemed. And it's it's also good to have limitations. Then we can go anywhere. Yeah, I agree with that. Tell us a bit about the figures in the poem. Some of our listeners just won't know. Who are they and why did you choose them? Which figures? Well, throughout the throughout the poem there's a sort of ventriloquization. Dario, Franco. Well well Dario Fo and Franco Rame yeah. were a couple in Italy. They were in theatre. He actually won the Nobel Prize, and, and and apparently she was behind everything he wrote and performance, and yet she kind of gave him, allowed him, saying that he was the singular genius or something like that. But it was a, it was a beginning. They were a collaborative couple. Yeah, the poem begins in a in a kind of kind of despair, held captive, then then promises we'll inspire each other, 
And then it finally ends with, a, I suppose, a sort of dampened hope. Plague persists, yet we prepare the earth for spring. To what, to what extent is this character, and to what extent is it sort of how you felt yourselves as you wrote it? Well, I had been held captive by an obsessive love, so I was speaking, but I was speaking through her. And then I found that quote from Lowell, I have sat and listened to too many words of the collaborating muse, and it was it was a way of escaping that confinement. So was the pandemic. Suddenly it was it offered somehow a, a freedom. Yeah. Sorry, Dick, you, you were saying something. No, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, for, for me it was, a, it was a mix. I mean, some of it was trying to, to sort of find the right voice to respond to, to the previous thing, the kind of, um, you know, sort of searching around for that. But, I mean, yeah, there's definitely bits that I'm sure leaked in of my own, my own feelings, certainly the bits about, you know, dull spotlights and, um, and things like that. <laughs> certainly, um, certainly me. And, and I mean, some of the lines were, were lifts from other poems that I'd been reading or, or did, did, that sort of felt appropriate. And I, mean, I think that was yeah. what really I liked about the, the Dario Fo um, element to it, this kind of improvisatory, slightly theatrical thing. And similarly on the on the form idea, I mean, I, I, I've maybe tried to write in syllabics over the time, but it's not something I've done almost ever or certainly very often. And, and, it, and it felt really nice to be doing this sort of thing that, you know, wouldn't ordinarily be doing and, and to have to to shift the voice around in, in a new way as well. I think if we were writing our own things and just defaulting to our own habits, it wouldn't have felt quite as, as collaborative. No, I totally understand that. Now, I know poetry makes nothing happen and everything, but a central aim of our project is to try to make poetry make something happen. The website, for example, is all about giving people a platform to share poetic responses to the pandemic and to communicate with one another. And I, I don't want to position both as fragile beings, well, well maybe Deck, um, but, but how's reading and writing, how's poetry helped you through this sort of shared isolation? You know, better to enjoy life or better to endure it sort of thing. And if so, what, what have you been reading apart from the people that you've, you've mentioned already? I mean, personally, yeah. I mean, the the poem at that point was sort of almost a track of, of lots of them. There was the Berryman letters and the, the Lowell and Hardwick and 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 Montale and things like that. But then, I mean, around the side of it, mostly I was I was reading things that I was I was writing about. There was particularly at that point I was sort of full on freelance mode. So there, was, there were lots of things I was reading that I I was sort of writing pieces about. Um, Larry Joseph, who's another another thing we share in common, I think, and and lots of prose and, and that sort of thing. But I mean. For comfort or sustenance, I think I was probably turning to old favourites more than anything. So there was um there was a bit of a Brodsky Brodsky phase and, and a few other bits thrown in between. A bit of McNeese, I think he, he came up a little bit, you know, just sort of reaching around. And then there was the Mahan unpleasantness. Um, and so yeah. I spent quite a lot of time with, with his work then towards the autumn time. Um, yeah, so did I. I didn't know, Deck, that you liked uh, Joseph Brodsky, who I, I always wished I had met him. I thought he would have been one of my one of my people. Loved him. But, yeah, he's, he's brilliant. Yeah. But I, you know, for teaching, I would read a lot of the poets that I've always taught. Among them, Louise Glick, and it was very interesting. I was looking for a specific poem of hers the day before it was announced that she won the Nobel Prize, and I remembered that I had written her a fan letter many, 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 many years ago after the Triumph of Achilles came out, and I remembered her response as being very strict and severe, and I had just set it, set it aside, and then. I found it and it actually was more generous than I had remembered. And I reread a, a lot of her work, although it's unrelenting and I got yeah. tired of it. And I don't know if it's because she won the prize. I don't think so. But 
I've kind of had enough of Louise Glick for a while, but I but I've been translating a lot three different Israeli poets. So that's where my head's been. It's almost been more work reading than pleasure reading. Yeah, yeah. So, so same here. I um I actually I I spent some time a couple of months during the pandemic in in Korea, and I was reading a lot of uh, Shiji, uh, Korean syllabic form. Uh, but I. I never succeeded to write any that were any good. So I've, I've got to commend you for, for using a syllabic form and making it your own, even if you did deviate from it at certain mm-hmm. points. I think it's a wonderful poem. And finally, I, I wondered if you'd see us out by each reading another poem of your own. So, something either written since the pandemic started, and I, I understand, Linda, you, you haven't written much, and I, I empathise, but preferably something like that or something directly related to it in some way or that speaks to it. Declan, I'll ask you to go first, if that's OK. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I haven't written much either, um, same as Linda, really, but there's one poem, a, a sort of old mentor figure of mine, a wonderful poet and critic, Colin Falk, died around about Christmas time. And, and for obvious reasons, I wasn't able to go to the funeral. So I, I sort of tried to write an elegy in place of my actual presence at the funeral. Um, and so I thought I might read that. It's just called Colin Falk, or in memory of Colin Falk. It's got a little epigraph from Keats, which is, On a lone winter evening when the frost has wrought a silence. I met you late in the day, already decades deep, into reasoning the unknown, into the known of which we are possessed, that royal we. Garden suburb Zen master, one outfit to the job, trainers snazzier than ascetic utility. Silver ank at once charm and pendulum. So much for located experience. Three moves in a decade. Each house plush, dark, book-lined. The key texts could have lived with two shelves. We won't find the poems of Robert Frost in the poetry of Robert Frost. We only saw the front room of each, gathering to our unadjusted impressions monthly. Hopeful your side lamp would at least stay on beyond the throat-clearing cough the common sense dismissal, the exiling of tangents to various permanently deferred subcommittees. An odd combination of manic hyperactivity and morbid decline, your verdict on modern poetry and in the end your fate, rude health until it wasn't, one morning on Lee Hunt's Heath. Evenings begun with piano recitals from a surprising toddler, your own late harvest, expensive cats, like their owner hardly domestic, rare, unimpressible. You were dear to me, devoted to art beyond nicety, head full of singing lines learnt with use, not design. We were lucky who sat at your table for our anonymous, instantly recognisable turn out of the ancient envelope. Not enough years for your plans, Coleridgean fancy, Arnoldian faith, philosophy background of a slightly unorthodox kind the camper van idling outside in anticipation of some grander removal. Are there any other angles on this? Wow, you've been writing. That was on the TLS as well, wasn't it, Dirk? It was on, yeah, it was on the website, yeah. Um, Basically, I wanted to try and get it up in time for his funeral, so Camille did me a a solid there. Wow, that was lovely. Wow, I'm jealous. (laughs) It's a wonderful brand. A good elegy is uh, a rare thing, I think. God, that sounds terrible, but you know what I mean. Thank you, thank you, Declan. Uh, Linda? Okay, so as I mentioned, I found very few poems, a lot of things about the garden and the hydrangeas and the mosquitoes and 
my kids being sick. But it was really only when my I had students here that I that I wrote anything that I I could read now. And one this was between the first and second lockdown, and I gave the students as a prompt the phrase the last time, because time was on our minds, thinking about the last time. And I wrote about the last time I spoke with my father. And I'll just mention three things that appear in this very simple poem. But there's a siren that is sounded throughout the city of Jerusalem on Friday afternoon, indicating the commencement of the Sabbath at sundown. And in the Orthodox tradition, many activities are prohibited on the Sabbath, including the use of the telephone. But there's also a concept, it, in Hebrew, it's pikuach nefesh, which it provides that anything related to the saving of a life overrides any prohibition. So pikuach nefesh, or the saving of a life, is a phrase at the end of this poem. It's called the last time. The last time dad called, he said the water was filling in Sadie's bathtub. He'd been called to help in case of a hurricane. Mom had died a few months before. It was Friday. The only phone I could answer was in the art room across the long corridor and attached to the wall. Food was steaming in the kitchen, kids strewn around the house. Soon the siren would ring, and I said, Dad, I can't really talk now. It's good you're helping, Aunt Sadie. She was always a nuisance, but probably more company now in his loneliness and need to be useful to someone. But I had to run, turn off the fire, get the table set, and he was okay with that. But what's that term, pikuach nefesh? I observed the Sabbath, I suppose, but I didn't save him. Thank you, both of you. It's, it's been great talking to you, and, and thank you for being part of the anthology. Um, I'm ever so grateful. And we're, we're very much looking forward to publishing your, your poem in that book. The anthology, Poetry in COVID-19, an anthology of international collaborative poetry, is, as I said, it's going to be published by Shearsman in March. And now I'll pass back to you, Colin. Hi guys, uh, long time listener, first time caller. Um, <laughs> I'd like to ask a question that um, isn't mine, it's actually Rory's. It's um, from your introduction, Rory. How can we write our way out of a pandemic or rather into a space where we begin to process abstract feelings of loneliness, illness, unhappiness, financial woe, death? I guess some poets, some writers spend a whole lifetime you know, looking for a subject to write about and here we are, you know, it's almost too big, isn't it? So how, how do we write our way out of it, or, or into it, in fact? In, in many ways, it's a it's an entirely shared circumstance, isn't it? Uh, it's a pandemic. In another, it's pushed us apart. It's isolated us, uh, and, and, it, and it's given us individual griefs as well, and um, other hardships. Or, or freedom from them, which carries its own burdens, I suppose. From, from the conversations I've had with many of my friends who are poets, uh, most people aren't writing very much at the moment, certainly not necessarily about the pandemic. And it's actually quite interesting that pandemics tend not to inspire a great amount of poetry. That's, that's sort of always been the case, certainly not directly about them, uh, maybe within that context. But I suppose the most obvious example is the, uh, 
the Great War, the First World War, which um, inspired all sorts of patriotic waffle verse, and 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 then a, um, I suppose a reaction to that in in the what we what we remember now as the great poetry of that war, and then the Spanish flu killed at least as many people, and hardly anyone wrote about it, at least not really directly. So I think it can be very very difficult. Uh, why that is, I, I I don't quite know. I don't have my finger on that. Certainly, the desire to to share is strong at this time. That's that's certainly true. And 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 our project has shown actually that there are a great many people writing poems about this, but none of the poets I speak to seem to be doing so. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Declan or, or Linda? Yeah, I mean, I think I wonder to an extent um, with something like this if partly you know in the middle of any crisis or, or whatever you want to call it, it's difficult to um, to come up with something straight away that you're going to be you know, happy with it. That isn't just a knee-jerk sort of reaction. It often takes a long time to, yeah. you know, compress, doesn't it? I think probably the, the, the best things about it will will end up being things people write in, you know, 10 years' time about the aftermath. But I think with something like like this, it's, it's maybe something also to do with the fact of what it is. You know, I think it's a universally agreed-upon sort of bad thing. There's not all that much nuance that can be brought to it. You know, it's different with a war or with, with any of these other big subjects, you know, that there are conflicting points of view. But I think, you know, you'd have to go a long way to find someone who thinks this is a good thing, you know. So maybe it's the sense that we're all in the same predicament, but it's a kind of an agreed upon one, you know, that, that there aren't many sort of unusual or weird angles you can maybe draw on this, you know, other than to say it's, you know, sighingly difficult and boring and horrible and, and, you know, all the things that people say in ordinary life. So maybe you don't need to reach for that other strand. I think a lot of people want want to write about this, and, mm. and one thing that that actually surprised me a little bit is that we found it very easy to commission the poets we asked for this anthology, and um, no one defaulted. Everyone wrote something, and they're wonderful poems. They're collaborations in all sorts of different ways. They're very often not directly about the pandemic. They write slant, and and but I think I think finding finding collaboration probably helps quite a lot of people. It certainly helped me. I wrote a poem with Tagaro Musumenharmo, a poet I've long admired since his 2015 collection Gumiguru, um, which is well, it's not that long, is it? But um, but anyway, I greatly admire that book. It's one of my favourite books of the past ten years or so. And and I, I cheated a bit because I asked if I could emulate his style and set him off first, and and we did that, and and it, it sort of worked wonders for me. But I hadn't written a line until that point, and I didn't know if I'd be able to. And what I found instead is that something poured out of me, but it was in response to what he was writing. We were writing in response, kind of against each other. There was a tension there, and and that really helped. Um, I, I don't know what do you, what do you think, Linda? Um, a few things come to mind. One, correspondence, actual letter writing has been very helpful. But I was thinking as you spoke about how it takes time after or it's not during something dramatic. And there was a writer, Edmund Jabez, who I've always loved, who lived in Alexandria, but he said he had to go to the desert in order to write about the city, in order to write about something dramatic. He needed both the time and space, the distance, in order to approach what had happened and what he had lived through. And I and also it was interesting, I, I was reading Camus' Plague and realized that he was using plague as a metaphor for the fascist period, but it was astounding to me how ex- accurate and close it was to what we were living through, especially the separation from people we love that a day before we thought, well, I'll see them in a few weeks, I'll be able to get on an airplane 
So it's somehow that separation has, for me, caused correspondence has has ripened, but the poetry hasn't yet come. Yeah, I understand. Uh, I mean, my my father at the moment, who I've always had a very difficult relationship with, is currently dying in a care home in Norwich, and and, and I'm unable to visit him. And and that's my first direct painful experience of the pandemic really um uh, i hadn't had one until then i've been very lucky with my job and everything else um I, i'm not alone and i wouldn't like to be i've been very lucky in other ways but but that that's obviously a very difficult circumstance i can't see him precisely because of the pandemic i have written about that that's become something that's a sort of focus on my writing i can't help it but that's what i'm writing about and that's the framework for it um, I am not remotely glad I've got poems out of it, but certainly I'm writing about something which is affected by the pandemic. But it's not. I'm not writing about virions, you know. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's that's really tough. Isn't it? I mean, you're in Nottingham lockdown, presumably. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. so I'm in Nottingham. He's in he's in Norwich, and he has alcoholic dementia, so he doesn't necessarily remember a lot of things. And so that's become the focus of a lot of my thinking and my, my writing and all those sorts of things. That is to some extent shaped by the pandemic. So the circumstance we're all living through filters into the things we write about, but the yeah. circumstance we're all living th- through is very unlikely to necessarily be the focus of our poems itself, because it is the circumstance we are all living through. What am I meant to tell you about the pandemic? <laughs> you know, how am I meant to communicate yeah. anything about it directly that you don't already know? Um, and I think that's part of the difficulty. People writing back from the front, to go back to that slightly crude analogy with the the, the, the Spanish flu and the, the, the Great War is people writing back from the front wanted to wanted to tell people what was really going on. That was part of their motivation, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. It's it's a much duller ache, the, the pandemic, and it's something that we're all feeling. Yeah. You know? So in itself it's not necessarily it can only become the vehicle when there's something else. And that wraps up for another episode in the Scottish Poetry Libraries podcast series. I must thank Rory Waterman, Linda Stern-Zisquit and Declan Ryan for taking part. A reminder, Poetry in COVID-19 is published by Shearsman and is available now. As promised, details of the next Poetry in COVID-19 podcast, it will feature David Heard and Sharmista Mohan with the Anthologies co-editor Anthony Kaleshu chairing that conversation. We'll get that up on the website next month. In the meantime, it only remains for me to thank you for listening and Will Campbell for producing and composing and playing the music that you hear at the start and at the end of the show. If you want to keep up with what the Scottish Poetry Library is up to between podcasts, you can visit our website, www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. We do all the social medias, so Twitter is uh, at By Leaves You Live. You'll find us there. We do Instagram, uh, at SPL Scotland is our tag there. And uh, we also do Facebook. Of course we do Facebook. And I believe, again, our tag there is SPL Scotland. So that is it for another month. Join us again next time when we shall listen to our second uh, podcast on poetry and COVID-19. Until then.
downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.